pull out your sermon notes from your bulletin so you can take notes because today we are jumping right into the story that we left last week. We've been studying the miracles of Jesus in the book of John. There are seven of them. We're on number five. And last week we saw Jesus feed 5,000 people and we learned a lot from that miracle. Literally 5,000 men, the Bible says, plus women and children. So there would have been maybe 15, 20,000 people there. Jesus miraculously fed them with five loaves of bread and two fish that a little boy brought to him. Um, and we learned last week that your best in Jesus' hands is always more than enough. You might feel like Andrew. Andrew went to Jesus and he, and he said, man, I know that there's a lot of work to be done here. I don't have very much, but what's been given to me, I'll give to you. And Jesus can use what you have to give. Your best in Jesus' hands is always enough. So we said, always be an Andrew. Always be willing to give whatever you have. Even if it feels like five loaves and two fish, not a whole lot for you. Give what you have because your best in Jesus' hands is always enough. We said, never be a Philip. I apologize if your name is Philip. But from the Bible story last week, we said, never be a Philip. Philip looked at the scenario and he said, if I can't do it all, I'm not going to do anything. I can't figure out this problem on my own, so I'm going to do nothing. So we said last week, always be an Andrew, never be a Philip, because Jesus performed this unbelievable miracle. And at the end of the miracle, it said his disciples, 12 disciples, picked up 12 basketfuls of bread. So basically, they all got a take-home bag to take, them, take with them. And they got in a boat, and they set out to go home. That's where we pick up Matthew chapter 6 today. We're going to start in verse 16, and they're on their way home now. It says, when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and they set off across the lake for Capernaum. That was home for them. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they rode about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Now, I'm embarrassed to admit to you what went through my mind as I began to study this text this week to preach and teach to you the miracle of John chapter 6, verses 16 through 21. And probably my embarrassment was heightened because of the series that we're in. We're in this series called Answers. What to do when you don't know what to do. For seven weeks, we're trying to bring answers to you because Scripture tells us as we study the book of John, when people begin to follow Jesus or they think about following Jesus, we tell people, read the book of John because the book of John is all about understanding who Jesus is so you'll believe in him. As a matter of fact, more than a 100 times the word believe is found in the book of John. Read John to believe more in Jesus. John is shaped in kind of three major areas, seven statements. Jesus says, I am this. Seven sermons. Jesus says, here's kind of how we interact with God. And then seven signs where Jesus says, you can trust who I say I am. You can trust how I say to live your life because I've got this supernatural quality about me. And what we've said, the simple thought of this whole series is that the deeper you follow Jesus, the more you believe. So we should all believe more on week five than we did on week one because we've been studying these great miracles and movements of Jesus John says at the end of his book, when you finish, you'll believe more deeply. He said this whole book is written so you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So we should all believe more today than we did the Sunday after Easter when we started this series. And because of that, I was embarrassed about what went through my head as I was studying this text. Because as I opened my Bible and I had my, my study guides and my notes and my pens and my highlighters and all the things I do to start getting ready, 
And I started reading through this text. Jesus told the disciples, get in the boat. They got in the boat. They started rowing across the lake. They kind of got buffeted by the winds. And Jesus came to them walking on the water. I read that and I thought, walking on the water, that's ridiculous. Like, that's the thought that went through my head. Have you ever read something in the Bible that you just stop and think, that could have never happened? Like, Maybe you have, I shouldn't. Like, I'm the pastor. Uh, I'm the one who's been to Bible college. I'm the one with the seminary degrees. I'm the one who gets to get up here and teach you this and tell you why it's true. And I found myself this week reading across this line. It was just kind of a fleeting thought. But I read, Jesus went to them walking on the water. And I just thought, that's, that's ridiculous. It was crazy as I've kind of... I've taught through the four first miracles of Jesus. Jesus changing water to wine. I never thought, that's crazy. I was like, that's great. I thought about Jesus healing a boy without even going to Capernaum. I never questioned, could that really happen? I thought, that's amazing. I read about Jesus healing the man who'd been lame for 38 years and thought, praise God. Uh, We studied last week about Jesus feeding people with just a little bit of food. And it's like, God is awesome. But for some reason this week, I read this line. Jesus came to them walking on the water. And I thought, now that is impossible. That is ridiculous. But I kind of laughed it off and moved into studying for the message. I just thought, well, you know, crazy thought out of nowhere. You know, I got to study this though because I got to teach the people. So I studied on anyway and I did what biblical hermeneutics tells me to do. If you go to seminary or Bible college, they'll tell you the word hermeneutics means how to properly interpret the Bible. It basically shows you how to study the Bible and know what it means. And when you practice proper biblical hermeneutics, it means you study every story from every angle. So I know that this miracle is recorded in three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John. I've read John. So I thought I need to go see what Matthew and Mark wrote so that I can craft a message, a Bible study to help our people understand how they can follow Jesus. And I started in Matthew 14. If you have your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 14 with me. A few pages over to your left. If you don't, it'll be on the screen behind me. Very similar story with just a few more details that are mixed in from Matthew's point of view. Matthew was also in the boat that night with John. Matthew was also a part of the feeding of the 5,000. He was one of Jesus, um, he was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. And Matthew tells the story this way, Matthew 14, starting in verse 22. Again, very similar, plus more. It says, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. Let me say this, they all took with them their doggy bag, basket of bread with them as they got into the boat to go on to the other shore. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat with their food and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. And the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, he walked on the water, and he came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, he caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. I got through with Matthew chapter 14, verses 23-33, and I was bummed. Because there's a great verse in there to preach on. Matthew 14, 31, at the very beginning of it, Jesus says, you have little faith. 
And I actually preached on that, just a little snippet of that, the very first week of this series. The word little there doesn't mean small in size, it means small in duration. Jesus basically said, why can't you believe longer? Why do you make a decision and then change your mind? And make a decision and change your mind. Jesus is basically saying, why can't you believe for a long time? Why can't you make a long-term spiritual commitment? And I read that and I thought, man, it's too bad I already used that because that would be a great verse to preach on. And I got ready to kind of go to this narrative in Luke. In Matthew 14, 31c, the third part of this verse jumped off the page at me. And I felt like these words literally just jumped into my head. Why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? And I looked at that and I thought, well, I, guess I, could, I guess I could be a good sermon. Why did you doubt? And I felt like the Lord said, no, 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 no. Christian, not a sermon. I'm not talking to you about this for the people. You, why did, why did you doubt? And then I began to have a conversation with the Lord. He said, how did you know, how did you know the Lord was talking to you? Because it sounds like Morgan Freeman. Um, you know, the voice of God in my head sounds like Morgan Freeman. And once I've ruled out like Shawshank Redemption's lines, it's like, okay, if he didn't say that to Andy Dufresne, okay, that, that's, that's for me, that's the Lord. So it's like, you know, so I'm having this conversation with the Lord who sounds like Morgan Freeman in my head. Um, and he's like, Christian, why did you, why did you doubt? So what do you mean? Well, you just, you just read that story in John 6 and you literally laughed and said, that's, that's ridiculous. Why, why did you doubt? And I kind of said, you know, I don't know, Lord, but I've, you know, I've, like, I've got to make a sermon. So is this what you want the sermon to be about? And the Lord said, no, you're not going to make a sermon for the people. You're going to make a sermon for yourself. Why did you doubt? And I literally just kind of got spiritually paralyzed for a few minutes and I thought, I don't know. But that question was ringing in my head. Why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? So I grabbed a legal pad that was sitting next to me. I grabbed a pen. I took a picture of it. And I just wrote across the top of the page. Why, why do I doubt? And I just started to write. When, when are some times that I really doubt spiritually? Because I was on this day worried about something. And I thought, you know what? When I worry, it re- that re- worry is doubt that God is in control. And God said, okay, how do you, how do you stop worrying? So I literally, I wrote a line through the middle of the page. And I thought, okay, when... I doubt when I worry, but then I believe. And I actually crossed out the word believe because I thought that, that's too strong of a word. I don't always believe, but I trust when I pray. And I thought, all right, God, that was a great exercise. Thank you. And God said, no, 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 no. Um, that's just one. Give, give me another one. Why do you doubt, Christian? So I started just looking at my own heart spiritually. Like, it's like I took my heart out of my chest and laid it on a table spiritually to examine it. And I thought, you know what? I doubt a lot of times when I'm alone. When I'm alone spiritually and I'm not surrounded with my Christian friends, I, I think I doubt spiritually a lot. I guess, okay, how do you fix that? I thought, well, when I'm with strong, encouraging Christians, I don't doubt as much. I tend to trust more. God said, good, another one. And I said, God, I always doubt after the battle. And by that, I mean like the spiritual battle. Like every Sunday when I go home from church, I begin immediately to doubt whether it anyone cared, whether God's moving, whether it all matters, whether any of it works. And Monday morning, sometimes I get out of bed, you know, and I just question if anything is, is going right. Like after the spiritual battle, I'm always gripped with doubt and fear. And God said, well, when don't you doubt? And I thought, during the battle. I never doubt while I'm preaching. Like when, like when I'm on the battlefield, I'm confident. But man, as soon as I step off of it, my, my spirit gets really weary. God says, okay, well, why is that? And I thought, well, I guess I, I doubt when I'm tired. And when I'm just mentally exhausted, when I'm emotionally exhausted. Maybe for you, when your job has worn you out, when your family's worn you out, when your finances has worn you out, when you're physically not feeling good, you begin to maybe doubt God. That, that's me. 
I thought I doubt when I'm tired. I trust more when I'm rested. I told God, I said, I think I doubt when it's all about me. When, when I am the center of my universe, I doubt and wonder how everything's going to impact me. But I think I trust a little more when I realize it's about God. God, I think I doubt when I know the natural. I mean, when I think about somebody walking across a lake, like that's, that's crazy to me naturally. But when I consider the supernatural, and I believe supernatural exists in our world, I, okay, that could happen. God, I think I doubt when I look into the future. That probably has something to do with control. But when I look at the future and the things that have to happen for the future to be good, I, I begin to question whether you're going to be there. But God, when I reflect on the past, like I never look backwards and say, where was God? I can always see God in my past. I struggle sometimes to see God in my future. I say, God, I think I doubt when things are, uh, I, I, think, I think I doubt when I don't have control. I think I realize that when I'm in control of outcomes, that I trust myself, um, but not God. But when I believe God is in control, I, I learn to trust him. I think I've learned that I doubt when things are hard. Like when life is difficult, I begin to doubt whether or not God's really there. When life is good, I, I trust. I've learned for me, probably my spiritual kryptonite, when I'm around negative people, man, I, I go backwards really, really fast. I think it's because by nature I'm a very negative and critical person. Um, I, I called Pastor Ryan into my office a couple weeks ago. I don't know, Ryan, where you are in, in here. And I, I told Ryan, we sat down a couple Mondays ago, and I said, listen, um, by nature I am heavy, I am critical, I drive. Um, you know, if you ever see me like outside of here, I probably don't appear to be the happiest, friendly, per, friendliest person unless I see you coming, then I'll um, act like that. But by nature I'm, I'm pretty intense. I'm wired intensely. Ryan, by nature, is very lighthearted. He's very fun. But moving into the building, we've had just lots of stuff going on, and he has had the same intensity to him. So I called him in, and I said, Ryan, I need, to know, I, I need you to know that I've got enough negativity, critical thinking, critical eye, critical spirit. I've got enough hard driving for both of us. If you become like me, we'll both kill ourselves. So in order to balance me, I need you to be fun I need you to be lighthearted. I need you to be you and let me be me because if we're negative together, this is going to go south like really, really fast. When I'm around negative people, I doubt. When I'm around life-giving people, I believe I can do anything. When I'm around people who say, I believe, let's go. I, man, I'm, I'm ready to go anywhere with those type of people. I realize when I feel distant from God, I doubt sometimes that things are going to be okay and that God is there. But then I wrote this I don't even know where it came from. I'm just doing this exercise. And, and God said, okay, when do you really trust? When do you really believe? And I wrote down when I'm in Israel. Like when you're standing in the Valley of Elah where David killed Goliath, you, you believe David killed Goliath. Like when you're standing on top of the wall that Nehemiah built, you believe Nehemiah was like a real person who really built the wall. When you see Hezekiah's wall that was built, you go back and read those stories, it had to be true, it's right here. When you walk through Hezekiah's tunnel that's built into the side of a mountain, when you stand at the garden tomb and see it empty, you believe Jesus rose again. It's like, man, when I'm in Israel, I really believe. And I kind of went on with this list. Well, when things go wrong, I doubt. When things go right, and God said, no, 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 you missed it. What do you mean? He said, the Israel thing. You said when you're in Israel, you doubt. Yet last November, you were on the Sea of Galilee in the exact same acreage that Jesus walked in. We took a boat ride with our group who was there. And I remember at the moment being on the boat, looking over the side at the Sea of Galilee and thinking, how did Jesus walk on the water? And at that moment, I believed enough that I wanted to try. Now, I didn't, but I wanted to. 
I thought, Lord, if he would be, man, like I would have been Peter, right? If I would have seen Jesus there, man, I'd have gone. I'd have just got out and gone. And Jesus said, how'd you move so far? I mean, it's been six months. How, how six months ago could you say, man, if he'd have been here, I'd have stepped out of the boat. And today you're saying this is absolutely ridiculous. Christian, what are you learning about your doubt and your faith? And boy, I'll tell you, after I heard from God, after I searched my heart, I felt like God said, now go back to the miracle. What do you see? What do you learn? This is the lesson for you, and I hope maybe it's the lesson for you today. Three biblical truths, three life lessons. We're going to go quick. Hang on. Here we go. Here's what I learned. I learned that my life of belief is stronger when I live in a community of belief. Now, I learned that just from my own list that I put together. For me, not for you. But I look back into the parable, and God says, God says see how that's true in the miracle in John chapter 6. When Peter was in the, in the boat with the other disciples, he was fine. When Peter finally took hold of Jesus' hand, he was fine. But when Peter left his discipleship group to try to follow Jesus by himself, he very quickly lost faith. And some of you are in that position. Your intentions are wonderful. You are following Jesus more deeply than you have ever followed Jesus, but you are all by yourself. Your best friend is not a Christian. Your spouse is not a Christian or your boyfriend or girlfriend. Your roommate is not a Christian. No one at your work is a Christian. Your kids aren't Christians. Or maybe you're a child, your parents aren't Christians. And you literally are following Jesus with everything you have, but you are all by yourself and doubt sweeps in quick. The apostle Peter in the boat with his boys is good. The apostle Peter with Jesus was good. But journeying to Jesus by himself, it was a hard road for him. You know, at our church, we use this graphic called four E's, and we say that this is one of the ways that people develop spiritually. Experience worship, go to church, engage in a small group, you know, connect in Bible study, embrace serving, get equipped to grow spiritually. But these are not things we've put in place to build the church. These are things we've put in place to build you. Because Christian community is not just key to development and growth, it's key to belief, the very belief that following Jesus can hold you up Christian community is key to that belief. So we don't say go to church because we want everyone to come to church on Sunday. We say go to church because Hebrews 10.25 says, don't neglect meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. You want to strengthen your belief? You want to strengthen your faith? Get to church on Sunday. Go to church one time a year and you will have more moments of doubt than you have of belief. You've got to get to church. You've got to be with the community. We don't want you to go to small groups because we want a big small group ministry. We want you to get engaged in a small group or a ministry because Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10 says two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either one of them falls down, one can help the other up, but pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Look at the strongest Christians that you know. Their closest friends and family members usually have a similar faith. It's just a reality. When your spouse is one of the best Christians you know, you're going to be a better Christian. When your boss is one of the best Christians you know, you're going to be a better Christian. When your best friend is one of the best Christians you know, you're going to be a better Christian. When your boyfriend or girlfriend is one of the best Christians you know, you are going to be a better Christian. That's just the way it works. But when you're alone pursuing Jesus, man, doubt creeps in quick. My life of belief is stronger when I'm in a community of belief. Secondly, number two, God's movement in my past is proof of his presence in my future. 
In Luke 7.35, Jesus says, said this weird comment. Wisdom is shown to be right by the lives of those who follow it. What does that mean? It means this. A life of following Jesus shows you how to follow Jesus. It basically says this. When you have questions about your future, look at your past. Wisdom for the future is seen in what happened in the past. Look at your past. So we don't need a spiritual crystal ball as long as we have a spiritual rearview mirror. But I learn often that if God won't give me a spiritual crystal ball, I struggle to keep moving forward. And God said, Christian, what you want is not to know the future. What you want is to control the future. But if you will look back, you'll realize I'm in control, which means you're safe. Keep moving forward. God's movement in my past is proof of his presence in my future. And what I find so funny about this is Peter was traveling with a miracle on his lap. I mean, the scripture tells us that Peter was a part of this crowd that that didn't have enough food, and then Jesus did a miracle, and they had food, and then Peter picked up a basket full of miraculous bread, and he put it on his lap, and he got in the boat, and he's riding across the Sea of Galilee with this basket of miraculous bread on his lap, and Jesus says, come on. So what does Peter do? Peter sits down his last miracle to pursue his next miracle, and somewhere in between loses belief that Jesus does miracles. Have you ever done that? Have you ever done that? I did that this week. I didn't realize it till yesterday, but I did that this week. While looking forward, I forgot to look back, and looking forward scared me. I've had a big week of faith. I've had a week of faith that really stretches me, and let me tell you why. We said before our church even began that we wanted to be a church that planted other churches. We said we wanted to be a church that had multiple churches in Kansas City because statistics say that most people who do not go to church will not travel further to church than they take their kids to school. Christians will drive across the city. People who don't go to church are not going to visit a church further than they would take their kids to school. So we say if we really want to impact our community, we're probably going to have to have a couple different churches. But that's not easy. But it's what we feel called to do. In January, our our elder board met and they affirmed, yes, this is the direction. Let's keep moving forward on this. And on Monday night, our personnel team met for four hours and they officially approved for us to offer a position of a church planning resident to quit their job and to come be on our staff for two years so that they could plant our next campus. Texted the guy on Monday, was so excited. We've been meeting with him for three years talking about this opportunity. And then this week, he began to ask questions. He began to call about moving date. He began to call about school districts. He began to call about his kids. Hey, my kids need to try out for sports in a new school, so we're looking at some calendars. So could we come in the summer for this? They have one special needs kid. So he said, you know, we need to be in a school district that has a great special needs thing. And as we went through the week, I literally thought, have we lost our minds? I mean, we've not even moved into a building yet, and we're going to hire a guy to start another church? What if this one doesn't work? And I just, I began to just freak, right? It's like I had a crisis of faith. And yesterday, I did what I often do in a crisis of faith. Now, you need to understand a couple things about me to understand crisis of faith. One, my mind just never shuts off. I just go, 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 go. Two, if it ever shuts off, it's while I do manual labor. So I love as often as possible just to get away. My favorite thing to do is mow the yard, but yesterday my yard wasn't big enough. So I got up, couldn't get my mind to shut off, so I thought, I'll go mow the yard. I was worshiping to Van Halen. Um, You know, as I was mowing the yard, so I'm mowing my yard, right, connecting with Jesus. And I got done mowing the yard, and I thought, I'm not done thinking. So I was like, i gotta, I got to find something to do. So it had rained a little bit this weekend. And up at our building, we still don't have doors and windows in. So I thought, you know, there might be some wet spots in the building, so I'm just going to go up and see. So I went in, and, I mean, there was just all kinds of water in the building. And I thought, you know what? 
I'm just going to get all the water out of here today. So I grabbed my kids, made them get squeegees and brooms, and we spent a couple hours at the building just getting all the water out of the construction. You say, do you have to do that? No, absolutely not. It didn't hurt anything. There's nothing finished in there. But it was good for me. I needed something to do. So I spent hours yesterday just squeegeeing in water and brushing sawdust, and I would pick up piles of stuff and move it, get all the water out, move a fan, dry it up. I mean, just, just to keep myself busy. And in the midst of this, I'm worrying. I'm doubting because I'm not praying. And I'm thinking, you know, God, what if, what if this guy comes here? Because we don't hire pastors. We hire families. And it's like, this, this not just this guy coming here. Like, his kids are coming here. You know, God, what, what, if, what if no one wants to go help him start a church? God, what if no one will give so that he can start a church? God, what if he starts a church and no one comes? God, what if he starts a church and, like, they're never able to build a building? And God literally stopped me and said, Christian, in the Morgan Freeman voice, Christian, yeah, yes, Lord. He said, Christian, stop. He said, look around. Christian, you are standing in a miracle, questioning whether I can do a miracle. What's wrong with you? I mean, I'm shoving water out of a building that is miraculous that it's even being built. Wondering if God has the ability to build a church. God's like, what are you doing? You're like the apostle Peter who sat down one miracle, got 10 feet away from it and wondered if God could do a miracle. Maybe that's you. Got to look in your past. Can I build a church? Are you kidding me? Are people going to come? Have people come? Will they ever have a building? What are you cleaning for no good reason on a Saturday afternoon? A ba- okay, okay, Lord. My past is proof of your presence in my future. And then finally, I learned number three, that the presence of God increases as your proximity to God increases. So just having conversations with God began to calm my heart because I brought him into the equation of this human control worry thing that I had going on, which is what Peter did. As soon as he reached out for Jesus, everything was okay. James 4, 8 says it this way, come near to God and he will come near to you. So three great biblical truths turned into three life lessons. What are they? Number one, if you have ever been close to God, but you're not now, you're the one who's moved. If you've ever been close to God, but you're not now, you're the one who's moved. God says, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. But there's nothing in scripture that says, God says, when you do this, I'm going to run away. Or if you upset me, I'm out. God says, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. So the equation looks like this. You're there. God's here. God says, take a step towards me. I'll take a step towards you. We take a step. God takes a step. We run away. God stays right there. He keeps getting closer. So if you used to be really tight with God, but you're not, what happened? I told Pastor Ryan, I want to open every small group semester the same way for the rest of the future of our church. I want to go around circles and I want to ask this question. And I want to ask you this question today. If you were to reflect on your past and think back to a time when you would rate your spiritual life at a 10 on a scale of 1 to 10. Think back to the season when you you were as close to God as you've ever been in your life. And you were to rate that a 10. What would you rate today? And what's changed? I promise you it's not God. Well, God doesn't come on Wednesdays anymore. Really? Well, you know, really? Something you have done or are not doing has changed. That's the lesson that God is teaching me. If you've ever been close to God, but you're not now, you're the one who moved. That's why God says in Joel 2.13, return to the Lord. He's gracious. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. Revelation 2.5, consider how far you've fallen. Repent. Do the things you used to do. So I used to be really close to God. Guess what? If you did those things, you'd probably be really close to God again. 
return to God. Secondly, number two, if we forget our past, we can lose faith in our future. I mean, it's really, really clear looking at this miracle in John chapter 6, followed, following a miracle in John chapter 6, that your past miracles are the greatest proof for your future miracles. Say, Christian, I'm facing a huge obstacle right now. I don't know what the outcome's going to be. Here's the answer to that. When's the last time you faced a huge obstacle you've overcome? Go back in your past and find it. What did God do? He'll do something again. Because he does. Your past is proof for your future. And then number three, God took me back to my very first day in ministry, October 1998. And he reminded me that storms in life are real, but Jesus is close. Listen, the storms you go through, I'm not discounting the difficult season you're in right now. What I'm telling you is that Jesus is close enough to grab hold to in that difficult season. It's funny how God took me back to the very first day of my ministry life this week as I just contemplated all this stuff in my own heart. And to make a very long story short, here's kind of the Cliff Notes version. In October of 1998, I'm a junior at Liberty University. It's the first semester. I'm sitting in a class called evangelism. I went to a Bible college. You had to take at least like one faith-based class per semester. I wanted to be a high school teacher. I wanted to be a government history teacher and a football coach. I was just kind of living life, but sitting in this mandatory class. And this youth pastor comes from Georgia who for an hour just shares stories about how he connected his life to kids who were far from God. He saw them accept Jesus and he saw their entire families change. And every story he told, my heart cried louder. That's, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to do. That's what I want to do. And by the time he got done, I literally left that class. I went to the registrar, registrar's office that I'd never even been to before. I had someone tell me where it was and I told the registrar, hi, here's my name. I need to change my major today. So what do you want to do? So I think God is telling me I need to be a youth pastor. I don't even know what I need to do to get that degree, but I think God is telling me I, I need to be a youth pastor. That afternoon, I, I went to football practice. They, I was on scholarship there, so they were kind of in charge of all that stuff. And after football practice, we had like a little meeting with the quarterback's coach and all the quarterbacks, and they said, tell us what's going on today. And I said, I, I changed my major. I'm going to be a youth pastor. I remember my coach saying, I don't... I don't think you're allowed to do that without talking to the academic advisor. Did you check with him? And I said, we have an academic advisor? You know, I mean, it was like, no. And he's, she's like, okay, well, you, you know, you need to wait. I don't think you're just allowed to change your major. Like, we're, we're kind of in control of that. All right. Remember, I called my mom and dad. My mom, whose dad is a pastor. My grandpa, 89 years old, retired last Sunday night. After 58 years in ministry, he preached his last sermon at 89 years old last Sunday in Maryland. And I told my mom and dad, God's, God's called me, I think, into ministry. And I've changed my major. My mom and dad both said, whoa, 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 whoa. You don't want to do that. Like, get a degree, get a real job. You can always do ministry later. These are two of the greatest Christians that I know who are like, slow down. You, 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 don't, you don't want to do that. And I connected with Danielle later that day who I just started dating. We called one of my mentors together and said, hey, I, God's called me to ministry. What do, what do I do? He said, you got to start reading your Bible. So where is it? Start at the New Testament and call me when you're done. I read it in four days, but on that first day, I turned to Matthew chapter one and I just started reading. I was laying in my bed in my apartment on my Snoopy sheets. Remember the little dog Snoopy? My mom, when my mom packed my stuff for me to go to college, I said, I need twin sheets. I have a smaller bed now. So like she packed these Snoopy sheets that I had like when I was six. I just recall they were on my bed. Tweety Bird may have been on my pillowcase. Um, so I'm sitting in my, my Snoopy sheets. I'm reading the book of Matthew. And I read across Matthew chapter 7. 
And I get to verses 24 and 25 and it says this. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. I stopped when I read that. I was so excited. I grabbed my phone that was connected to the wall, that actually was connected to a receiver. I punched the buttons in the phone. I called Danielle in her dorm room. I said, you're never going to believe this. She said, what's that? I said, God just gave me the name for my youth ministry. I, I decided to be a youth pastor like eight hours ago. And she said, what's that? And I said, the rock. And she said, Why? Because I said, God has shown me that life will always be hard, but that if you stay close to Jesus, you'll make it. On my first day of ministry, I hadn't been in ministry 12 hours. God taught me the lesson that in life, it will always be hard, but if you stay close to Jesus, you'll make it. For eight years, I led a youth ministry called the Rock Youth Ministry. And then somehow after starting a church, that had slipped my mind. And God took me through a few things this week to remind me who he is and who he wants me to be. I found myself this week, not as the pastor of a church, but like the apostle Paul in Philippians 3.10, after I got through with all this exercise I was doing, my heart's cry was, you know, I just want to know Jesus. I am not a good enough Christian. I do not know enough. I do not trust enough. I am not close enough to Jesus. I don't remember my past miracles enough. And I said, Lord, I want to know Christ to know the power of his resurrection, the participation in his sufferings. I want to become like Jesus in death, so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. I thought, you know, I want to commit my life all over again, Jesus, to know you better, because clearly I miss it from time to time. I'm going to commit to the four E's. I'm, I'm going to pour more into Sundays. I'm going to figure out a way to connect with the guys in my world who are my small group. I'm, I'm going to keep serving you faithfully. And clearly, I've got next steps to grow. I'm going to keep reading my Bible. I'm going to stay in prayer. I'm going to keep talking to my counselor who I go to once a quarter. I'm going to keep meeting with my ministry coaches because I've got so far to go spiritually. But like Philippians 1, 6 says, I'm confident of this. I'm not confident of many things, but I'm confident in this, that Jesus, who began a good work in me, will carry me on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You see, we may sit our miracle down from time to time and forget who Jesus is, but Jesus never sits us down from time to time. He says, I picked you up where you started. I will set you down in eternity, and I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm always there. So why do you doubt? Why do you doubt? Say, Christian, I used to be close to Jesus, but I'm not. Move back towards him this week. Do what you did at first, Revelation 2 says. Say, Christian, I'm afraid to move into my spiritual future. Don't look at the future. Look at the past. That will give you confidence to know that God will be there. Say, Christian, I'm going through some storms right now. Hang on to Jesus. He's closer than you think, and this storm will pass. You're going to make it. But why do you doubt? Let me leave you with that question this morning. Why do you doubt? For me, digging deep into my doubt actually drove me closer to Jesus this week. Why do you doubt? Maybe this week it's time to pull out a pad of paper and a pencil or a pen or to grab your phone and pull open your notes section and maybe not leave it until you answer that question. Why do you doubt? Why do you keep making commitments that you don't keep? Why are you traveling all alone in your spiritual life? Why do you doubt? Because I think if we can answer questions in our own heart, we can connect to Jesus in a way 
that's so transformational that we'll be more confident in our future because of who he is in our present and who he's been in our past. We pray with me this morning.